I'm really honest, the Sermon on the Mount, where this is from, is actually my most favourite part of the Bible. I just absolutely love it. The more you read it, and the more you study it, the more alive it becomes, the more God speaks to you through it. It's just, just beautiful. It is the, you know, the heart of God, isn't it? And the heart of Jesus towards us. It's just a living word, isn't it? So I just, I just love it. Um, and one thing I absolutely love about when I'm asked to speak is that I end up studying deeper, much deeper than I would do if I was just on a daily devotional or just in a reading schedule or whatever. And I love to research. I should have been a journalist or something, I think. Um, because when I start, you know, get my teeth into a topic, I like to just gather up every detail I can, I can before I write it up. So it's like, it's like the iceberg effect, you know, you get the, the surface bit and then there's like this whole iceberg underneath um, where, where it's been researched. And one thing that I've found in sort of my quest for understanding the Beatitudes a little bit more um, is that it's not as prescriptive as it first seems, you know. It's not a set of rules. It's not a set of guidelines to follow so that we can be blessed. Um, God is, is gracious. He doesn't need to barter with us to bless us. He, does, he just wants to bless us. He's gracious. He's not a do this and I'll bless you. He loves you. Through Jesus, we are blessed. And as he works on our character, the Holy Spirit grows his giftings in us. And we're already clothed in righteousness. We are forgiven. And we are works in progress. So the Beatitudes, what are they? Some think that they're more a prophetic um, utterance than prescriptive, that they're not about living to high ideals, more, you know, like a moral checklist or something like that. Um, and we will find these kinds of checklists in the Bible, but the Beatitudes are not that. that. Um, you know, it's the declaration of God's grace. He's brought us through and now we join in with him. It's an active participation He's saying it's okay when you go through th these things because with me, you're safe. And with me, you are free. And that, that makes me think of my dad. When I was little, um, he didn't like holding hands. He, he liked to be a bit freer. So he'd go, back pocket, you know, like this. And I had to put my little hand in his back pocket like that and just toddle on behind him. And... Um, you know, and he could feel the moment I was about to lift my hand out. So he knew, and he'd just sit with me, kid. You know, that's what it was like. So, but I knew I was safe with my hand in his back pocket. And he knew exactly where I was all the time. And so it just reminded me of that. Um, but what a, a, a beautiful message last week. And it was actually a gorgeous morning, wasn't it? Uh, it was all about surrender. You know, and the songs, the greeting from Rochelle... And uh, which was, Rochelle, you're amazing at what you do when you get up and you speak. And I just wanted to say that because nobody says it, you know. You just think, oh, I get up and it's easy for you. But it, it's, she's amazing. And, um, and the word from John, obviously. It was, you know, even when we prayed beforehand, the word surrender came up. 
And none of us had discussed it beforehand. It's all the conducting of the Holy Spirit. He's just amazing. I say amazing a lot, don't I? I just realized. But praise God. So John spoke on the first of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. And we looked at practicing humility and recognizing our complete and total dependence on God. We looked at how we just can't do this by ourselves. Um, And that reminded me of something that I read quite a long time ago. I might have mentioned it before. I do repeat myself, but I'm going to say it. Um, It's from a book. um, It's always stuck with me. It's from a book by a guy called Andrew Wilson, and it's on the character of God. And he picked up on the passage where it says that God sustains us. And, uh, and the universe only continues to exist because God keeps sustaining it. Like, if I built a wardrobe, I built the, build the wardrobe, and it exists. I can walk away, go in another room, and come back, and it's still there. It's existing. I've built it, and that's that. But when I create a sound, like singing a note, the sound will stop existing as soon as I stop making it. The sound only endures because of its relationship with me. And it has no existence of its own. And in his book, Andrew Wilson says the universe is just like that. If God stopped sustaining it, it would have no basis of being there. And that's always just stuck with me. If God stopped singing, we would cease to exist. You know... And, and Rochelle had actually mentioned the verse. It, made, it makes that, you know, it's just something about it so beautiful to me. And, and, it, and Rochelle mentioned that verse last week from Zephaniah 3 where, where God sings over us. And, uh, and that makes it all the more precious, doesn't it? He sustains us like a musician sustains that note. It's just beautiful. And, you know, no matter who you are or what condition you're in, or whether you're saved or not, God sustains us. He's so gracious. And just to back that up, it says in Hebrews 1 verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus sustains us. Psalm 3, verse 5 says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. So we're totally dependent on him. We can worship him for that right there, can't we? we can, we're completely and totally dependent on God. Like John said, for every breath we take, we depend on God. We're so fragile. And that leads us straight on to the second of the Beatitudes, um, which is Matthew 5, verse 4. And it's, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So let's just pray before I continue. Father God, um, help me as I speak on your living and your holy word. I pray that you will be honored, that you'll be glorified, that we'd be changed by it. Lord, I pray that you bring wisdom, that you bring comfort, 
And Lord, help us to know you more. In Jesus' holy name, amen. So at face value, this verse is quite self-explanatory. When we're sad, God comforts us, and as a result, we are blessed. But as I went deeper into the verse, it's become really clear that there's two ways of looking at it. It's, it's quite often that happens, doesn't it, in the Bible? And in our culture, to mourn is usually about bereavement, isn't it, when we've lost somebody dear to us. But mourning in the culture this was given was either for a bereavement or it was sorrow over sin. It was either our sin or sin in general, that it's in the world. So it was either or. And of course, you know, the two are linked. We know that sin is the root cause of pain and death. I mean, what are the wages of sin? Death. John mentioned that verse from, from Romans last week. But as I've been looking, I've, been, I've found that some people focus on either one or the other, either the sin focus or the death focus. But I, I do believe that Jesus speaks to us through, through both. So it does make sense um, that after the first of the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, um, that the next one focuses on how sin separates us from God. And that mourning is the repentant, broken heart, convicted of the sin that's taken us away from the heart of God. So the first beatitude leads to confession, and the second leads to contrition, which is defined as sorrowful regret leading to repentance. So it's like a journey, isn't it, through the beatitudes? We all have that moment, don't we? You know, when we reach that point of contrition, where we reach that point of remorse for our own sin, and that, that feeling of being separated from God because we've just gone on a track of our own. Um, I was horrified when I realized I needed to actually do something and repent. I was like, but I think I am a Christian, am I? I don't, oh, oh no. And it was a bit like that, you know, I was horrified. I thought, oh, I need to do it now, it's too late otherwise. And I had to immediately surrender before it was too late. There was an urgency to it. But when we're honest about ourselves, when we hold ourselves up to the light and realize that we're not good enough to ever make it to eternal life by ourselves, when we realize that we've sinned and uh, we come to him in our sorrow, the Bible says we shall be comforted. How? Because Jesus sorted it. He saw that there was no way that we could do it for ourselves. There's no way back unless he comes in and rescues us. And every one of us, you know, he came back for each and every one of us and came to pay that ultimate price for us. That's such grace. We're so blessed. It's amazing. And Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He dwells with us. 
when we have a contrite and lowly spirit and he revives us. That's why we're blessed. That's why we're blessed. Praise God. Isaiah 61, verse 1 to 3 says this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And Jesus quoted this verse, didn't he, in the synagogue at the very beginning of his ministry. It was his mission statement. And he said he fulfilled that passage that very day. And it shows God's tender heart towards those who mourn, towards those who, you know, who are mourning either for the loss of a loved one or mourning because of sin. God wants to bless you. He wants to take you from that sorrowful place to a place of gladness. And again, that alludes to both sin and death. So I thought, well, to focus on just the one, whether it was just, at first I was just going to talk about the death side of mourning but then I wouldn't be giving you a fully rounded view of what it means because he means both. In biblical times, when somebody lost a loved one and also if they were repentant because of sin or felt any sort of humiliation, they would rip their clothes. Don't do that, anyone. They wore a sackcloth as an outward sign of mourning and submission and they threw ashes over their heads. It's a bit dramatic, but that's what they did. It was a symbol of desolation, grief, and ruin. And it was a recognition of that, wasn't it? A recognition that something's not right. We are sorrowful over either something that we've done or something someone else has done or because we've lost somebody. In the passage... God replaces the ashes and the sackcloth with a beautiful headdress. I mean, I've only just realized this as I'm reading it. The beautiful headdress puts you in your right mind. You know, when when you're grieving, whether it is for your sin or for someone else, we overthink, we go too deep, we get insular, our thoughts run away with us. But... God puts on a beautiful headdress on our heads, puts us in our right mind, and he gives us a garment of praise. He replaces mourning with the oil of gladness. It gives a picture of gentle restoration. It's not a quick cheer up, you'll be all right. Oil was used on open wounds to prevent infection. If you leave a wound untreated it's going to get infected it's going to fester um and it's also used oil as a symbol of the holy spirit and and the anointing and we do we do feel that raw open wound when we lose someone close grief is indescribable i can't 
describe grief to anybody because it's so unique to each individual person. We all go through it in different ways. You know, I looked up all these, you know, psychology things, you know, five stages of grief and seven types of grief and all this, and I, ha I had them all ready to write about. But do you know what? I'm talking about how God deals with grief, not how we deal with grief. And, and God deals with grief by pouring oil over us. Um, but grief, it's unpredictable. It's a deeper emotion that anyone could ever imagine. And it really does come in waves, doesn't it? It sounds a bit cliche, but it's true. One minute you're okay, next minute it knocks you sideways. And our late queen said, grief is the price we pay for love. And she said that when she was speaking to the families of the 9-11 victims. She was right though, wasn't she? Grief is the price we pay for love. It's horrible to say goodbye to a loved one and feel that finality of death. But Jesus says we're blessed when we mourn because we shall be comforted. We struggle with grief, but we're blessed with his comfort during our grief. The Message Bible says this, you're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. In that verse, Jesus uses the Greek word pentheo for mourn. And that's translated as the feeling of grief or the act of sorrowful wailing. And if you've ever lost anyone close or gone through a divorce or lost a close friendship, you will have experienced just how raw and deep that feeling is. It can feel as though it rips through your very core. And one minute you're okay, next minute you're crying your heart out. But I thank God that it really does come in waves because it's so intense that I don't think anyone could survive it constantly. And Jesus didn't shy away from human suffering. He didn't say, oh, you'll be fine, you know, like... You, your hope's a bit further. He didn't do that. He just go like, cheer up. He wasn't like that. He didn't pretend it wasn't something that we all go through. He, he did make sure we all knew, though, that we're never alone. Even when we feel it, we are not alone while we're going through it. There is not a full stop after blessed are those who mourn. There is a for. For they shall be comforted. There's power in that for you know, they shall be comforted. The word for comfort in that passage is parakaleo. Now, when I saw that, my heart leapt because I knew exactly where that comfort was coming from. Because I'd seen a word very much like it, very, you know, very close to it. And the Holy Spirit is known as the parakletos, which means intercessor, helper, comforter, advocate, the exact meaning of parakletos is called to the side of, an of another for help or counsel. So whether you feel him or not, when he says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted, he's saying blessed are those who mourn because the Holy Spirit is right there with you. He's right beside you. And it's so wonderful. We're not simply just comforted. 
It's not just a quick someone going arm around you, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's no, there's nothing wrong with saying, I'm so sorry to somebody who's lost someone. But it's so much deeper. It's so much deeper. All those things are comforting, and it's really difficult, sometimes really awkward, to talk to somebody who's just lost somebody. You don't know what to say. It's like, you know, it's like staring at a huge bleeding wound and not, and not having a clue how not to make it worse. You know, you can't make someone feel better. And that's, you feel a bit helpless. But you know what? We're really blessed. Because when we grieve, we are comforted by the great comforter, the precious Holy Spirit. He comes, he stands beside us. God never fails us. And I, um, you know, I've felt this and I've felt it physically. Um, not, all, not every time I've mourned or grieved, but th- this one time. Um, some years ago, and I have talked about this before, um, I had, quite a few years ago, I had a miscarriage and I'd just got all the baby things out and I'd just come to terms with, oh, we're having a baby, it was my second child. And the next minute I'm in hospital and the baby is no longer there. I was going, and I went through the whole horrendous experience of it by myself. I was married then, and my husband was at home with my my eldest son, and my mum and dad were way over in in America working. They'd been there for a month, and I'd never felt so alone—not ever in my life. It was a harrowing time. And after it all happened and what have you, and I was on this very large, very busy ward, and I just said to the, the nurse who, who'd come to speak to me, I was like, I just need to go in a room by myself. It was too busy, and I wanted to go and just be on my own in a room. And, uh, and so uh, they used to have family rooms then, I don't know if you remember. And I went into this family room, and I just wanted to speak to God. I had not been a Christian for very long. It was about three years as a Christian. And I didn't blame him or anything like that. Never never felt to blame him for anything. Um, I just wanted to pray. I wanted to sort of put the baby to rest. Because the baby had gone. I had no, no way of funerals or anything like that. And, I, you know, so I just wanted to put the baby to rest. And... Uh, and that's what I did. So I went into this, this, this room all alone, feeling very alone. And then I prayed. And honestly, it felt like all of a sudden somebody had put, you know, them old-fashioned crutches that came under your, under your shoulders, those ones. It felt like I had two of those under each arm just holding me up. And it was a physical feeling. And I, I could not explain it only that way. Um, I knew God was holding me up. I felt quite mentally and physically weak in myself, but there was this strength that was not my own that was holding me up. It came from outside my body. And that feeling stayed with me for about three, two to three weeks. And, and, and as I gradually became okay and got myself you know well obviously God was ministering to me as, as you know as I started to get my own strength back 
I felt them less and less. But it was such a blessing, you know, and it, it sort of quietened me. I didn't have to question everything. And, and it was the only time I've ever felt that. But it, I'll never forget that feeling. But every experience of grief is different. I've been through other losses since then. I've been through a, a awful divorce and I recently lost my dad and I didn't have any sort of particular physical feeling. But I know I'm not alone. I might not feel any physical feeling. I might not feel anything here. You go a bit numb, don't you, when you're grieving? But, um, but I know that God's with me. And like, especially in the case of my dad, I know where he is. I've got that joy of knowing it's not forever. I'm going to see him again. And there is a joy in that. And it's, it's weird to say it, but honestly, I feel like it's not final. I'm going to see you again. And that's a blessing, isn't it? And I know that I know that I know. There is no question. He's with Jesus, and I know the Holy Spirit's here with me. You know? So I'm, I'm fully convinced that even when we don't feel him, he's there. He's interceding. He's praying for us. He's helping us in ways we will, you know, we'll only know when we reach heaven. And, you know, he comforts us. He sends others to help. He advocates on our behalf. He's called to our side. And, you know, I, I know this because I've accepted that it's not dependent on my emotions or a physical feeling of a presence but I know without a doubt that the Holy Spirit is with me, whether I feel him or not. He's bigger than my feelings. He's more than my emotions. Um, yeah, and the Psalms are full of examples of where God comforted and where God's close. And, you know, we've already had a few, so I'm just going to carry on. Psalm 23, we all know this, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted he sa and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 147, verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And I could go on and on and on. Because he tells us constantly that he's with us. We don't have to question it. We don't have to feel it. He's with us. And sometimes I think we need to go and reread these verses for ourselves and take them in and let them go from here to here, right into our hearts. Let God use his word to minister to us and penetrate our hearts. Because you know what? God did not orchestrate death. It wasn't in his original plan. But when sin came into the world, it was incompatible with a holy God. And, you know, Jesus knew all about mourning. He also grieved. When he heard about the death of John the Baptist, he wanted to go off by himself to a lonely place to be on his own. But instead, in his own grief... He ministered to others. Let's just read it. Matthew 14, verse 13 to 15. 
Now, when Jesus heard this, that's the death of John, he withdrew from there on a, in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages to, and buy food for themselves. And then he went on and fed 5,000 men, and then their, you know, the women and the children, so more than 5,000, while he was grieving. They'd followed him to this desolate place. He'd initially just wanted to do what we all do, all want to do in grief, to get as far away from everyone as, as he could. He wanted to be alone. But when he saw them, he had compassion on them. And he didn't, you know, he just he healed them, and then he taught them, and then he fed them. And that was one of his most famous, far-reaching miracles, you know, before the resurrection, obviously. And it's, it's one of the most famous miracles and one of the most talked about miracles. He didn't run away from grief. He didn't pretend like he shouldn't go through it. When his friend Lazarus got sick and died, he immediately went, made his way over to that town, even though he was days away. And when he saw everyone mourning when he arrived, what did he do? He wept. He didn't just dismiss it and say, I'm here, I'll come and sort it. He wept with everybody else. He grieved with them. And they said, see how he loved his friend. But his heart went out to them. So many times we read of Jesus' compassion. And he knew what was about to happen. He knew he was going to go and call him out of that grave. But he still grieved. Because every time we see Jesus come across a dead person in the Bible, what do you think happened? They didn't stay dead. <laughs> they were raised. Even when he died on the cross, he went into the grave. And, well, he died, and then a load of people came out of graves, it says, doesn't it? You know, people came out of the graves. It's just amazing. They were raised Death and Jesus do not get along, I don't think. Um, but Jesus must have come across funerals and the loss of family members. I'm sure he did. You know, but the Bible only talks about when he came across three dead people. And he raised them all. Lazarus, the widow's only son, and Jairus' daughter. And he raised them, raised them all. And there is always hope in Jesus for resurrection, if, if not now, but in the time to come. And I read that the great evangelist, I love him, Smith Wigglesworth, he preached here, can you believe it? It's amazing. Um, in 1933, he preached here. He raised around 26 people from the dead. Now, I don't know whether that's a true number or if it's been overestimated or underestimated. It could have been more. It could have been less. Who knows? But he was able to understand and move in the anointing of raising people from the dead. We don't see that much, do we? And we've all got access to that anointing. The Holy Spirit's in each one of us. But I read an account where he was talking about his wife, Polly. And they were a bit of a double act. They started off together. And she was the preacher. And, uh, and he'd been the one who prayed for people. 
He was a bit gruff, plumber from Yorkshire. And he healed, and, and you know, and they, he'd heal, do this healing ministry. She'd preach, and, uh, and they'd occasionally preach himself. But this is what he said. My wife once said to me, you watch me when I'm preaching. I get so near to heaven when I'm preaching that someday I'll be off. One night she was preaching, and when she had finished, off she went. I was going to Glasgow, and I had already said goodbye to her before she went to meeting. I was leaving the house. The doctor and the policeman met me at the door and told me that she'd fallen dead at the mission door. I knew she'd got what she wanted. I could not weep, but I was in tongues praising the Lord. On natural lines, she was everything to me, but I could not mourn on natural lines, but just laughed in the spirit. He laughed. The house was soon filled with people. The doctor said, she is dead and we can do no more for her. I don't think they'd learn the act of, you know, you know, bedside manner. She's dead and we can do no more for her. I went up to her lifeless corpse. I mean, he doesn't, you know, dress it up, does he? I went up to her lifeless corpse and commanded death to give her up. And she came back to me for a moment. And I said, oh, this is lovely. Polly, I need you. And she answered, Smith, the Lord wants me. Then God said to me, she is mine. Her work is done. I knew what he meant. He then, according to the interview, obeyed God, kissed her and said, goodbye for now, and left the room. He said it was the hardest thing he'd ever done. After that, his ministry, his ministry exploded, and he went on to travel the world, ministered to hundreds of thousands of people, and this was like in the 1930s, 40s and 50s. But what faith! I'm not sure I'd have the faith or the guts to command life to someone who's just died. But if I had that anointing, I don't think I'd have the faith to not do it. Do you see what I mean? So if I had that anointing that I I knew I could just go and raise somebody from the dead, you know, if if they were like, no, God, I'm going to heaven, leave me alone, I think it'd be really hard to just let them go, wouldn't it? I think that's probably why we don't have that so much now, because we can be a bit selfish. <laughs> but, but yeah. When I lost my dad and we were really close, it was awful. But above all the lovely things people said or did, my greatest comfort is knowing that I'll see him again. I know I've already said that. It's it's not final. I've got that comfort in knowing that he's with his saviour. He loves Jesus. I knew he'd go to Jesus. I've got no doubt he's with him. And even if it's not the death of a loved one, but the death of a marriage or the loss of a relationship or a close friendship or even a career, we can find hope and comfort in the fact that the Lord is near when we feel this way. We're comforted because he's near to us and this makes us blessed. And we're blessed to be a blessing, aren't we? So everybody else gets the benefit of that. And in the Bible... There was a time limit for the mourning process. They grieved for 30 days and then got up, washed themselves and made the effort to go back to their lives. And it becomes a conscious choice to continue. I don't think the hurt will go away or whatever the feeling, but that conscious choice to continue is quite healthy, isn't it? 
Obviously, you still feel that loss, but you begin to move through it. You begin to cope with it. And there's nothing wrong with mourning. In the correct context, it's healthy, and it helps us to come to terms with our loss. But with everything, if grieving takes us to a place where we ourselves are not really living, or we've got into a depression because of grief, then we need help, and we need extra help, don't we? External help. And, you know, maybe speak to a grief counsellor and come, come to the front, come and get some prayer. We're always, always here to pray for you. And we do struggle with death because it all seems so final. We can't rewind it. We can't stop it. Benjamin Franklin said, nothing is certain except death and taxes. It's inevitable, but it's not final. The word of God tells me that. It tells me that not only will we be with our loved ones again, but death is only temporary. Isaiah 25 verse 8, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Again, that's about death and about sin. He takes away the reproach, he swallows up death. He's amazing. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 to 14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. They mean dead. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. He's amazing. One more verse and then we'll pray. Revelation 21, 3 to 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Praise God. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. But if you're struggling, whether it's with loss, or grief, or sin, please come forward, and we can pray for you. Release it all to God. Just release it. It can be so easy when we're going through that sort of hurt to just wrap ourselves up and protect ourselves and put our little tender hearts into a, a 
stone box and then we don't have to feel anything or, or, or whatever. But just, and you know, and we don't let anybody in when we do that, do we? But just come, allow him in, allow him to comfort you. And then also, if it's sin that you're mourning about, if that's left alone, and that, if that's ignored, that will fester, and that'll cause you pain. We've got to remember that Jesus died for our sin. So let's, let's pray. Thank you, God. Just give you a few seconds. Just think about where you're at. Just think about, is there a grief that's not been dealt with? Is there a mourning that you have for, you know, undealt with sin? Have you lost someone and you need some help to get through this? Let's just pray. Holy Father, first of all, I pray for those who are struggling with sin and with loss and with grief. And I thank you, Lord, that you've provided us with a way through and that you don't allow us to walk that path alone. I pray that you would heal every single broken heart here today. I thank you, God, that you've paid the price for sin and sickness and death. And we want to say sorry for our sin, Lord. Please come into our hearts this morning and heal us. Have your way in us, Lord, in Jesus' name.